1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 16. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did, as Jezebel directed them in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside of the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me again? Father, we are so grateful for the many gifts that you give us. We are especially grateful for your word that shapes and conform us, conforms us. Father, your word confronts some of our modern sensibilities and shakes us and makes us feel uncomfortable, and we thank you for that too, knowing that your word is truth. We thank you also that it does not depend, its power does not depend on those who speak it or preach it or read it, but on your spirit. And we know that he is here active among us. We pray that he would be doing his work in our hearts even this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As a parent, it seems like there is this endless 
endless list of things that we need to teach our kids. Maybe we need to teach them those kind of everyday, ordinary things like how to brush their teeth properly. We need to teach them those important life lessons about how to respect their elders. We need to teach them those absolutely vital things for life, like how to light firecrackers without blowing off their hands. You know, there's this long list of things that, that we need to be teaching our children. Thankfully, there's some things that our kids know intuitively. For example, I don't think I ever had to teach my kids the word fair, or about fairness, or unfair. It was probably the fourth word they learned. Mommy, daddy, no, fair, right? They're <laughs> just born with this sense of, of justice, of fair play. We, we can identify from a very early age when something is unfair. If you doubt me on that, I dare you. Next Sunday, go into the two-year-old room, bring cupcakes with you, but only enough for half the class. Before you do that, let me know. I'll have the paramedics standing by because you are going to lose a limb. I mean, it's going to be ugly. That sense of, of fairness that we have. I love what N.T. Wright, an author, says about that. He says it's an echo of God's voice. We're created in the image of God, and that sense of justice that we have is his thumbprint on us. He is a just God, and because we're in his image, we have this, this echo that reverberates through us. We want justice also. That, that word fair it is so common in our house. We probably hear it like 80 times a day, usually having to do with, you know, the amount of food one kid gets. You know, it, it's not fair. He got more Doritos than I did. Or it's not fair. He gets to stay up later than I do. It's so common, I've found the perfect way of dealing with it. You know, when one of my kids is complaining that it's not fair, their brother got a bigger brownie than they did, I'm just honest. I say, yeah, I know. It's because we love him more than you. Uh, that deals with it. It's the perfect way. But when we're actually trying to be good parents, uh, we have a conversation about, you know, life isn't always fair. Uh, we try our best but sometimes we don't have all the facts. Or sometimes the facts are right there before us, but we don't know the, the wise choice. We don't know what's equitable in this given situation. We have this sense of justice, of right and wrong, of, of fair. But it's frustrating in this world, isn't it? Because life isn't always fair. And justice isn't always served. Sometimes justice is denied or perverted, or twisted, and it's, it's frustrating. I mean, it can be over trivial things, like, you know, my kid didn't make the all-star team because the coach picked their kid instead. But it can be about really profound things, about being denied educational opportunities because of the color of your skin, or doing the same amount of work but not getting fair pay because of your gender. Or being fired because your boss threw you under the bus rather than taking the responsibility for his own failures. Not fair. But unfortunately, in this broken world, those stories are a part of life. 
this story that we just had read to us isn't a pleasant story in the Bible. But it is a story that reminds us that God is a God of justice, a God who cares about justice. And as his people, his concern ought to be our concern also. The story, as we continue beyond what was read, is also a reminder that God is the final arbiter of justice. He will establish justice. And so it's a call to live with that confidence. Uh, the narrative that was read starts seemingly with a pretty innocent request, doesn't it? Ahab comes to Naboth and says, you have a vineyard, it's next to my palace, I want it. I I'll trade you, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you don't want another vineyard, you're tired of working grapes or whatever, I'll pay you for it. Seemingly innocent request. But as you look at the details, you realize it's not so innocent. Uh, the text says that Ahab is the king of Samaria. Well, Ahab is actually the king of all of Israel. Uh, the kingdom of Israel has been now split at this point in history into two separate kingdoms. Judah in the south, Israel in the north, and Samaria has been established as the capital of the northern kingdom. That's where Ahab lived and reigned. But Naboth is in Jezreel. Ahab has a kingdom, or has his capital and his palace and his residence in Samaria, where the capital of Israel is, but he wants another one. He owns another one, and he wants to extend its property, kind of make it more elaborate in Jezreel. It's a reminder that the words of Samuel, the judge, have come true. Samuel had told the people, when you demand a king, you need to be aware of what you're demanding. The king is going to take your sons and make them soldiers in his army. He's going to take your horses and use them for his chariots. He's going to take your fields and build palaces on them. That's exactly what's happening. Ahab isn't satisfied with one palace. He wants two. And he wants to make them bigger. And he wants to fortify them. And he wants to build the army. Ahab's gotten greedy. And he's doing what a greedy king does. He's taking. But there's something even beyond that. Something more sinister in a way. Ahab is breaking Israel's law. In Israel... Land was not to be sold outside of your family. Leviticus makes it incredibly clear. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine, says God. You are strangers and sojourners with me. When Israel first entered the promised land, the land was physically divided up. Okay, this tribe, you get that land. This tribe, you get that land. And then within those divisions, the clans got their division. And then family units got their division. And the land was never supposed to pass from one family to another. It was God's way of protecting every Israelite in that society. Of making sure that it was a society where the rich didn't just keep getting richer and the poor just keep getting poorer. If land had to be sold because of a debt, 
it was supposed to be sold to a family member. And if that wasn't possible, there was someone called a kinsman redeemer who would come in and buy the land for the family. And if under those rare, bizarre circumstances, land had to be sold outside the family, there was kind of a societal reset button called the year of jubilee. Every seven cycles of seven years, or every 49 or 50 years, the year of jubilee would come. And debts were canceled, slaves would be set free, and land would revert back to its initial ownership. It was a way of God saying to the people of Israel, you're not supposed to be like other societies that oppress the poor, that push them down even further and get rich at their expense. It was a way of, ta- way of maintaining equity and justice. But Ahab was rejecting this, rejecting this kind of alternate society, in essence rejecting the law of God and the very reason Israel existed, to be a light to the nations, to draw them to worship of God because they were such a unique place, a unique people. Neboth replies to Ahab's offer, and he says, the Lord forbid that I sell the land of my fathers or my ancestors. At first reading, that sounds just kind of like an exclamation, doesn't it? Heaven forbid I do it. But it's much more literal than that. Truly, the Lord forbid it. It is against God's law for me to sell my land to you. Well, Ahab responds like a mature king should. No, not so much. He, he pouts. He's sullen and angry. He goes in and he lies on his bed and he sulks. A- another version says he turns his he- head away from people and refuses to eat food. He's acting like a 13-year-old. Actually, the first time I read it, i got to confess, you know the image that came to mind was of the movie Willy Wonka and Veruca Salt. I'm getting nods. People are recognizing. In the first service, not so much. Uh, there's some kids here, though. Uh, Veruca Salt and the people who are touring the chocolate factory walk into the room where these, there's these trained squirrels, and they're cracking open the nuts and you know, deciding which nuts are good nuts and which nuts are bad, and they're throwing the bad nuts away. And Veruca is just the, the epitome of a spoiled, rotten brat. And she says, Daddy, I want a squirrel. And daddy says, Veruca, darling, you have many marvelous pets at home. You don't need a squirrel. And she says, daddy, I've only got one pony, two dogs, four cats, six bunny rabbits, two parakeets, three canaries, a green parrot, and a turtle, and a silly old hamster. I want a squirrel. Okay, I'll get you a squirrel. No, daddy, I don't want just any old squirrel. I want a trained squirrel. Okay, Mr. Wonka, how much? Well, you can't have one. They're not for sale. It's as though Ahab is playing Veruca Salt in the the story here. Naboth, I want your vineyard. I know I have lots of other vineyards. I know I have lots of other land, but I want a vegetable garden right there. And Naboth says, but you have so much else. No, you can't have it. And Ahab pouts. 
Jezebel enters the story, being the darling woman she is, and says, what are you doing? You're, you're the king of Israel. Get up, cheer up, eat, and take it. I'll give it to you. It's not quite that simple. She schemes. And she sends a letter from Samaria, where they are, to Jezreel and the elders of that city. It says, here's what you need to do. Declare a fast. Put Naboth in a prominent place. And put two scoundrels or two worthless men next to him. And have them bring a false charge. Saying that Naboth has blasphemed God and cursed the king. And then stone him. And the elders of the city are complicit. And they do it. And Naboth is murdered. I mean, think about all the ways that justice has been corrupted in this situation. There's been theft. The whole justice system has been turned on its head because of false witnesses. There's been lying. There was certainly coveting. There's stealing. And there's murder. When Naboth is stoned to death, Jezebel goes into Ahab's palace and says, come on, he's dead, let's go take it. Now if that was the end of the story, you'd think there's no justice in that at all. But it's not the end of the story. God is the final arbiter of justice, and God has seen what happened. He sends his prophet Elijah to Ahab. And you got to know, as soon as Ahab sees Elijah, he's thinking, oh, not again. Elijah says, I have a word from God. He saw. He saw the murder. He saw the theft you took. Now, where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, they're going to lick up your blood too, Ahab. And the dogs of the city, they're going to eat wicked Jezebel. And every male in your household is going to be cut off, slave and free. Your dynasty ends. Your family ends. You've angered God. You've aroused his righteous wrath, and it's not going to go well for you. Ahab is one of Israel's worst kings. Horrible king. He promoted idolatry and the worship of Baals. He put up with Jezebel and he committed grave injustices. Throughout the prophets, you see these kind of twin things being decried. Idolatry. The prophets say, people of Israel, you're worshiping Baals and Ashtoreths, you're running after foreign gods, and you're committing grave injustices. You're oppressing You're neglecting the widows, the orphans, the poor. You're perverting justice. You're accepting bribes. And for this, my people will be judged. Ahab stands as a pattern for many kings that are going to follow. And it will lead to very bad things for Israel and then later for Judah. The story is a grim story. But it's one that shows us something important about the character, the nature of God. 
First, it shows us that God is a God of justice, a God that is concerned with justice, and it reminds us, it calls us to share in that concern. From Israel's beginnings, God showed his concern for justice by handing down laws that were just, that were equitable, and he also ensured a process through which these laws would be enforced. There was just process that ensured that justice wouldn't be delayed endlessly, that justice would be accessible to even the poor. God was very concerned that his nation, his people, would be kind of an alternate society that would be based on equity, fairness, justice, In many ways, the church parallels Israel. We, too, are supposed to be that alternate society where God's concerns become ours, where God's concern for justice is reflected in us. I think there's at least two venues in which that concern for justice ought to play out. First, it's within these walls. Within the walls of the church, things that divide people, things that separate people, are abolished. There's no slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. There's equity. There's no rich or poor. James just goes to town on the church, doesn't he, in his letter? Saying, how dare you favor the rich? How dare you give them the places of honor and the best seats in the church? There should be no favoritism in the church. There's another example from early in the church. Uh, When the church would gather, they would celebrate communion. And it was a large feast. It became known as the love feast. But there was a problem. The rich people in the church, those who were wealthy, could come to those gatherings early in the day. While those who were more of the working class would be out working in the fields or in the shops or in their businesses till much later. So they'd arrive late and those who were rich and had been there for a long time had eaten the food and gotten drunk. And there was nothing left for the poor. And Paul says, how dare you? How dare you turn a love feast It's supposed to celebrate unity and equity and justice and love and turn it into this where the rich are feasting and getting fat and the poor are left to their own. Within the walls, God's concern for justice ought to be evident as we relate to one another as brothers and sisters. But it ought to be evident also as we leave this place. We ought to carry that concern God's concern for justice and equity out with us. Well, what does that look like? I got to be honest. Sometimes I just don't know. Uh, Sometimes I get just absolutely overwhelmed by the interconnectedness of systems and and the unintended consequences of what I hope are going to be just actions. It's sometimes beyond my mind to sort it all out. I don't know if you've been frustrated by that before. 
You know, you read an article about what kind of sneakers to buy that aren't built in sweatshops. And so you say, okay, well, I'm going to swear off buying sneakers that are built in sweatshops. But then you realize, but wait, now that factory just closed. And those people that were making some money are now making no money. Or, you know what, I'm going to use corn to fuel my SUV. Well, that's great. Until there's a corn shortage and people are going hungry. and There's all these unintended consequences. And sometimes I, I just don't know how to sort it out. But I think here's a few thoughts. I know probably here this morning, there are some that are perfectly aware of an unjust system that they're operating in and they're using it to their advantage. They're doing it knowingly. I think the call from this story is to repent of that and to seek justice. Just last week, I I read a story about a, a man who owned a car lot and he realized that the system that they were using, this negotiating, kind of bartering system, was really unfair. The, the ones who drove the hard, hardest bargain were rich white men. And those who could least afford to pay a lot for a car were getting the short end of the stick when it came to negotiating. Minorities and women. The man could have milked that system and probably made more money milking it. But instead he said, this isn't fair. Those who can afford to pay more are paying less and those who can't afford to pay more are paying more? That doesn't make sense. That's not fair. It's not just. So he said, okay, no more negotiating. The price is the price. Good business practice? I have no idea. But he was pursuing justice at least. Some here, need to, some here need to stop taking advantage of unjust systems for personal gain. Some here have knowledge that eludes me. Knowledge of how all these systems connect. Knowledge of how we can fix broken things. Amen. Use that knowledge. Use those positions that God has put you in to further justice. Maybe it's at the university and you're aware of unfair admission practices. Work against that. Maybe you're an economist and you know how these pieces of the puzzle fit together. Wonderful. Use that knowledge. Use your influence to work for justice. Maybe it's in public health. Maybe it's in politics. Amen. God has put people in places, given them knowledge to be used Men like William Wilberforce, who saw injustice and was put in a place where a few others were and could push against the injustice of slavery for his whole life. Amen. If you're in that position, do it. Work hard at it. But not all of us are. All of us, on the other hand, are in positions where we can minister to those who are downtrodden. Minister to those who are disenfranchised, who are pushed down, beat down, forgotten. Even you kids who are here, you know who they are in school. Those who are kind of forgotten by the system, those who are left out, 
mistreated by other kids, you can minister to them. You can be an agent of God's redemptive grace in their life. You can be a friend. You can be a, an advocate for them. And guys, maybe you're aware of kids in the neighborhood that don't have a male influence in their life that's good. Stand in the gap. Ladies, you have to know of other needs. Be God's hands and feet. Work and serve and minister to those who need it. There's plenty of us who are on that side of the coin. And there's probably plenty of us who are on the other side. Who suffer grave injustices. The story of Naboth reminds us that God will eventually set things to right. And and we live with that confidence. It it fuels in us, or it works in us, patience and endurance. Yes, things might be unjust now. Yes, things might be unfair. Yes, we might be being pushed down. But God will set it right. And we can live with that confidence and that peace. The other thing that this story tells us about God is that his patience does come to an end. God is a God who punishes. He is a God who gets angry. He is a God of wrath. But he also extends grace and mercy. The the whole idea of retributive justice has fallen kind of out of favor in in our culture. We don't like the idea of giving people what they deserve. Instead, we want to rehabilitate criminals and refit them for society so they can be contributing members. Kind of the idea of punishment for the sake of punishment and giving someone what they deserve is out of favor. We think rehab is more benevolent, more kind. But not so, said C.S. Lewis. This is, you know, your token C.S. Lewis quote. We can't go for a sermon without having one. Lewis, about half a century ago, said, my contention is that this humanitarian approach of trying to rehab criminals and and treat crime as though it's an illness that can be cured, it's merciful. It, It seems like it's merciful. But he says, really? That means that each one of us from the moment he breaks the law, is deprived of the rights of being human. The reason is this. This humanitarian theory removes from punishment the concept of just deserts. But the concept of desert is the only one, the only connecting link between punishment and justice. It is only as deserved or undeserved that a sentence can be said to be just or unjust. Again, the idea of someone getting what they deserve doesn't seem very palatable to our modern sensibilities. But it's very biblical. Scripture is consistent. God is a just God who repays according to what has been done. God is just, so he punishes sin according to what it deserves. And we can't shy away from that. We can't hide that truth of Scripture as though it was an embarrassment to us. 
the 1930s, Richard Niebuhr complained that, that liberal theologians were trying to do just that. He said they preach a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. And while it seems more palatable, maybe, you lose too much. You can't make sense of salvation without punishment. You can't make sense of the cross without wrath and punishment. What is salvation anyway? Yes, we've been saved from sin. We've been saved from death. But more importantly, we've been saved from the wrath of a holy God. And what of the cross? How do we explain the cross apart from from punishment? There's lots of ideas of what the cross accomplishes, and they help us in part. But if you remove punishment from the cross, it makes no sense. The cross is a wonderful example of the love of God. But is it love without justice? You take punishment out of the equation, it is. Yes, the cross ransoms us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of light. But is the king still angry because of our sin? If sin hasn't been punished, then yes, he is. And yes, on the cross, Christ won the final decisive victory against Satan and against darkness. But what about my sin and what I deserve? See, on the cross, Christ stepped into our place and absorbed the punishment of God on our behalf. Sin is punished. And Christ took my punishment. Christ took your punishment. I know thinking about God's punishment and and the wrath of God is uncomfortable, especially as we sit here and we, we know we're sinners. And that knowledge that we're sinners and that God is a wrathful God might lead us to, to run away from God. But to where? <laughs> Ask the prophet Jonah, he tried that. Where do you run away from the God who created heavens and earth and sea and everything in it? Your hope isn't to run away from an angry God, but to run towards him and embrace the grace and the mercy that he offers. It's a costly grace. It's a costly mercy because someone had to pay the price. Someone had to step in and suffer the punishment that our sin deserved, and it cost God his son. He sent his son to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The answer isn't to run away from the anger of God, but to run towards God and plead grace and mercy, to hide yourself under the shadow of his cross. That's you today. If the Spirit's working in your heart, Don't try and quench the Spirit. Don't try and quiet the Spirit. Listen as he's drawing you to the grace and the mercy of God. Sin is punished. 
Thanks be to God for the cross, where our sin is punished, our guilt is removed, and we are welcomed into the family of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you were a just God. We never have to fear receiving more than we deserve. And we thank you that we deserve so much less. We thank you that your son has satisfied your wrath so that you can look on us and see him. You look on us and see pardoned sinners, sons and daughters, cleansed of unrighteousness. Father, we pray that your grace would continue to shape us even as we approach your table, as we approach this feast that feeds our souls, we pray that you would remind us again that we are loved by you into the depths of that love. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.